This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a doctor, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about sharing conversations that will elevate your performance and your health. I have another great episode for all you endurance sport enthusiasts out there. Joining me today is Dr. Andy Reed, an ultra endurance athlete and sport medicine specialist located in Canmore, Alberta. I actually had the privilege of working with Andy last year during a two-week sports medicine elective as part of my final year of medical school. I absolutely loved my time with him, and it's safe to say that those two weeks had a significant impact on my future career plans. As you'll hear, Dr. Reed is an incredible elite-level ultra-distance trail runner. He has some wild stories and truly knows what it is like to push his body to the limits. In terms of medical education, he completed medical school in the UK and then trained as a family physician before beginning a full-time sports medicine practice in Canmore in 2012. Dr. Reed has been the lead team physician for the Canadian National Biathlon, cross-country, and paranordic ski team since 2005. He has a keen interest in the utility of ultrasound for the diagnosis and management of sports injuries and has extensive experience in the prevention and management of running-related injuries. In this conversation, we discuss reframing pain and the power of self-talk, the importance of having a why, injury prevention, good pain versus bad pain, long, slow runs in zone two, common sports medicine injection therapies, and setting the fastest known time on the Canmore double quad. A crazy story you have to hear. Anyways, hopefully you enjoy this one while out for a bike or a run. And like always, feel free to let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a comment on your podcast app or hitting us up on Instagram. My handle is at Cass Warbeck, and you can find Dr. Reed at CanmoreMD. With that, please enjoy this conversation. Dr. Reed, welcome. It's great to see you after talking about this for so long. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Cassie. This uh, should be fun. I'm looking forward to uh, to our chat. Yeah, there's there's a lot I want to ask you about, but I thought it would be fun to just dive right in. And I want to ask you about the recent marathon that you ran. So my understanding <laughs> is that this was actually your first road marathon because normally you run much longer distances, which is actually insane. But I would just love to hear about your experience. How did it compare to your expectations? Oh, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah, no. I if if I uh, if I tell the truth, I was kind of uh, I was peer pressured into uh, running a marathon. Um, we have, we have a pretty awesome uh, running community here in Canmore, and half of my friends um, have managed to uh, get get a Boston qualifier. So they're all running the uh, Boston Marathon, I guess next next April. So they're like, oh. You you need to run a marathon. You need to come join us in Boston. It'll be a you know a fun event. So I eventually uh, caved in and decided I would uh, <laughs> dip my toe into the road of uh, into the world of uh, road racing. And and I have to say it was it was unbelievably tough. Um, I don't think I really appreciated how hard training for a marathon uh, was. But anyway, I I, uh, I had a pretty good day on the day and. Um, hit my goal time. So I got my, uh, my Boston qualifier. Yeah. Yeah. You, you ran a sub three, right? Is that what you needed to qualify? I did. Yeah. That was, that was kind of my A goal. My A yeah. goal was to go under three hours. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I thought I could do that if I had a, a good day, my, my Boston qualifier time was three twenty five, So I knew that, you know, I had some room to, uh, to, to get to a not have so, a great day. <laughs> yeah, awesome. exactly. Well, so, congrats. It's so exciting. Um, that was fun, but it was hard. <laughs> Um, is the, so you'll be going to Boston next year. Cause I think yeah. this year it's coming up in September, right? It's in April. Yeah. So the, oh, okay. So next yeah, year. The, the race is usually in April. I think, I okay. think, um, 
I think COVID threw a wrench in somewhere, but uh, next year it's uh, it's April, so it's Patriots Day in uh, in the US. Um, so yeah, I'll hopefully be there if I can stay injury free. <laughs> yeah, that's the tough part, hey. Um, oh yeah, you have some uh, tougher events coming up. I'm I'm sure. Um, I want to ask you about that coming up, but. I had in preparation for this interview, I was actually reading, um, you wrote a short blog about reframing pain. And I think you wrote that as you were training for the marathon and this was coming up. And I would just love to ask you about that. So what does it mean? And were you able to like apply that during the race? Because you mentioned it was painful. Yeah, reframing pain. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think a lot of these events, they're... uh, you know, they're big mental exercises for sure. And, um, you know, I think we, when the going gets tough and, and it gets painful, it's, it, it's so easy to, you know, for that to start to play on your mind and you get in this very kind of negative downward spiral, um, which feeds off itself. So, you know, I think having, you know, having this idea in your head that, you know what, I signed up for this and this is what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, you know, I knew it was going to be painful. So, you know, having those kind of, you know, those kind of, uh, self-talk, um, concepts to, uh, to get through the tough times. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in, in, you know, self-talk and, uh, mental preparation for these things. So I think that's kind of what I was getting at, um, when I was talking about reframing, reframing pain, you know, pain, pain is not always a bad thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we, um, you know, I think we spend so much of our lives trying to make, trying to make stuff easy. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to go out and do hard things. So, yeah, yeah no, I completely agree. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm curious. So when you say that the race is painful, you're, it's like just basically sitting with discomfort and wanting to slow down, but not letting yourself slow down for like, I'm assuming the majority of the your duration running running how soon do you push yourself into that like discomfort zone like are you like running in a comfortable place like right away or is it something that kind of slowly builds throughout the race yeah I mean I, I think in in the marathon you know just kind of continuing to talk about the marathon I think um you know if you've done your training properly then you know that the pace should feel pretty manageable but at, you know at some point it's certainly going to get hard you, you know you you hear about the you know hitting the, hitting the wall and all this kind of stuff but i would say for me you know uh probably around 30k it started to get a little you know it started to get pretty hard actually i'd say half you know halfway i, I had a yeah. good time to half halfway through and then you know i looked at it and looked at my time and the, the pace felt you know it felt reasonably comfortable but i was like wow i i actually have no idea if i can keep this pace up for another for another half marathon so um yeah. So, so the pain, the pain on the marathon, you know, I think if you've trained well, the paces should come relatively easily. Um, but at the end of the day, you're running that race at, you know, right at threshold, you're on your max, you're trying to, you're trying to run 42.2 K as fast as you possibly can on the day. So, so the pain certainly comes for sure. Yeah. That's so crazy. I can't, <laughs> the most I've ever run at once is like, uh, I've done a few halves and yeah. like, even then not like super competitive. So I can't imagine it's a different type of like, yeah mental strength, I guess, that goes with that. And, yeah, and I think, and I think ultras are quite different, you know, yeah. you know, obviously, um, you know, I like the longer races and, uh, you know, I, I kind of have this. Can I you have, just, can you just explain like, what is long to you? What type of races do you run? Like, so an, an ultra is anything above 50 K. 
Yeah. So, so an ultra is anything over a marathon, but okay. you know, typically they start at 50 K. So the, the classic kind of ultra marathon distances are 50 K, 50 miles, hundred K, hundred miles. Um, and, and now, you know, people are now dabbling into, you know, 200 mile races, which seems completely crazy, but, uh, um, so yeah, so that, that's, that's an ultra. And, you know, when I, I, I like the, you know, I kind of like the hundred K hundred mile distance. That's kind of my, that's my jam for sure. And I have, I always have it in my head that I, I need to get to halfway. I need to get 50 miles feeling pretty good. You know, I mean, you're never going to feel great at 50 miles, but that's, that's always my goal. So when you're, you know, when you're well-trained and you're well tapered and you're rested going into those races, you, you know, you should feel really good at, good at the start and the pace should feel super, super easy. That, that comes with its own problems because sometimes you go way too hard, of course, but, uh, but no, I, you know, I, I think the pain in an ultra definitely takes a little longer before it creeps up. Okay. So what draws you to ultra endurance running? Like what, when did you start doing these races and like, what do you love about them? I guess, because so many people listening, like to even, it's almost like you can't, we can't even wrap our head around like how far and how long it would take to actually run a hundred miles or, and yeah, it's just like such a different world. So I'd love to hear. Yeah. And and it's interesting actually, you know, you know, I've, I've run, I think I've done 900 miles now. And, you know, even now I have another one coming up in six, six weeks. I, I actually cannot wrap my head around that distance right now. It's uh, and it's actually, I find it's actually a good idea not to even try and think about it. <laughs> That's one strategy. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I try not to think about it, but yeah, I mean, what, what, you know, what, what's the motivation? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's the the question, right? What's your, why, why, why do you do it? And, uh, you know, I, I, I find it actually kind of pretty difficult to articulate that, you know, what's the, what's the, the, uh, the motivation to do it. But I, w- I would say, you know, when I first started doing running ultras, I did my first one when I was, I think it was 40. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I'd be, I'd be telling a lie if I said that I, you know, I, I wasn't kind of extrinsically motivated a little bit. I mean, I, lo- I love competition. And, uh, uh, when I started running them, I, I had some success and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's great when you win a race, right. You know, that feeling of, of winning a race or at least being in the mix. Uh, uh, certainly that was, you know, that was, you know, an extrinsic motivator, I would say, but I mean, definitely as I've gotten older, um, and slower, you know, uh, I, if that was my sole motivation now, I, you know, I, I wouldn't line up, uh, for any races at this point, cause I'm, I'm not going to win races now. Uh, I still try and be competitive, obviously, but yeah, I think the, you know, the, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a great long day out in the mountains, you know, that's the kind of way I, I look at it. And, uh, you know, I think, um, I love the sense of adventure, love the challenge. And as I said earlier, you know, I think so many aspects of our life now, is you know trying to make stuff easier you know you can we order our stuff off amazon we we uh we we have computers now that will write our essays for us you know all the ai stuff and you know we we spend so much of our time i think trying to make things easier and easier that you know i i think there's actually some good good value in trying to do some hard things and and making you know making life a little uncomfortable at times and you know i i enjoy that I realize some people don't get that, but, uh, you know, I enjoy the challenge of it. I enjoy the adventure and, and the trail running community is, is, is an awesome, um, community as well. Uh, so, you know, nothing beats a 
good long day out with your friends in the in the hills and uh yeah and i still enjoy the competition obviously i try and you know i I, it would be a lie if I said that I don't like racing. I love racing. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're still competitive. I just have to say, like, I remember my first day, I did a two-week sports med elective with you in Canmore. And my first day with you, you had just come back from competing in a hundred mile race. I forget where it was. It was down in the state somewhere. And I know you you come in second and you oh, were right, like, yeah. so close to winning it. And so it's like, I think you're doing <laughs> a disservice to say you're not competitive because like, well, yeah. you're still like right in there. That was, that was a that was a smaller race yeah that, that that was the race i was actually in the lead until mile 99 i led the whole race actually so uh mile 99 and then i i, I got passed by a young guy who out kicked me so <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, was like, Orcas Island, hundred mile race. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I was so nervous to work with you after like knowing that you'd done that. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, I probably couldn't walk at the time. Yeah. yeah. I think you re-injured your Achilles. I think that's what. <laughs> yeah, probably. You were yeah. hobbling around a bit, but no, that it was, was good. Yeah. Um. Okay. So when you're like the race is painful, you're like you got miles to go still. You had mentioned that you have some you like self-talk and like yeah. what are some of the strategies that you use? What are there some of the things that you say to yourself to kind of get yourself through the like the hard spots? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you know, when you sign up for these things, obviously they're they're super hard, right? So mm-hmm. um, you know, I think you need to have some some deeper meaning, I guess. Um something that you can turn to that that helps you to get through those tough times, you know, whether that be, you know, I, I, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a race I've wanted to do for the last decade. You know, I, I ran Western States in 2016 and, and it's so tough to get into that race. You know, it, there's a lottery every year and it, I think it took me eight years to get into that. So, you know, when I finally did it and that was a, that was actually a really tough day for me. Um, I think just having that, you know, just remember how much you wanted this, you know? So, so that's certainly, uh, that certainly helps, um, having, having that extra, you know, that, 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 that sort of dangling carrot, if you like to, to, to keep you moving. But yeah, I mean, I, I have my own little, I have little mantras that I say to myself, you know, they sound kind of dumb and speaking them out now, but you know, if I'm running down a hill, you know, a technical, technical trail, you know, I'm, I'm forever saying to myself, okay, smooth, like butter. That's my kind of mantra, you know, which is yeah. my, you know, keep the running, keep the running smooth. Um, uh, I, I usually try and have some little, um, uh, some little other, other mantra that I repeat to myself through the race. Um, I'm trying to think Western States, uh, when I did that, uh, I was thinking patience, patience for the first third, um, persistence for the second third, and then grit for the last, for the last third. And those were kind of the words that I had in my head to, get me through that and patience was all about just not going out too fast and then you know the the middle third of a race often gets pretty you know gets pretty pretty tough that's when things start the wheels usually start coming off and so you have to be pretty persistent there and and then the the last third the last third really is mental and it's all just about grit and being able to put up with the discomfort and you know think back to you know why why you signed up in the first place so so those are kind of some of the things that I say to myself yeah (laughs) yeah no that's very helpful um I always like I'm so interested in like the mental side of the sports and I think there's so much that goes on that like people don't see like you just don't know and yeah yeah, and and, and, you know and I always say you know the first after after five hours of running everything hurts 
you know, everything is sore. You, you know, your quads are sore, your feet are sore. You, you know, there's all kinds of things going on. Often your little, you know, stomach's going off. So after five or six hours, really everything hurts. But, you know, in many cases, it it uh, it actually doesn't get a whole lot worse than than where it's at. You know, if it, you know, if the pain was seven out of 10, you know, I, I actually think it doesn't get a whole lot worse, but it just kind of comes down to how much do you want to put up with it? And, you know, you may have to put up with it for another 18, 19, 20 hours, right? So so that's when, that's when mental strength comes in for sure. Yeah. One of the things I'm, I'm curious about with you, and we're going to get a little bit more into the sports medicine, but I'm, how do you balance your, like you have such knowledge of the human body and such knowledge of all these extensive sports injuries, running, running injuries. So how do you balance your knowledge of like the human body as a physician, mm-hmm. but also continue to like push yourself to the limits when you know, like, I think one could argue that running a hundred, 120 mile races isn't inherently healthy, but <laughs> yet you do oh, it anyway. How do you, how do you kind of justify that or like yeah. rationalize that in your head? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, absolutely. You're right. You know, I, I, I don't think running a hundred miles is, is a healthy thing to do particularly. Um, but, you know, I think I've come to, you know, with my knowledge as a physician, you know, I, I, I certainly listen to my body and I, take rest days. Um, I don't hammer myself if I'm not feeling good. I certainly, I certainly don't mind taking days off or cross training, you know, doing something else. So I, you know, I think, you know, I have the knowledge and, you know, I, I go in the weight room and lift weights and I know that's going to help prevent injury. So, you know, I, I, I use my medical knowledge to, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, be sensible in my training. So, yeah. A lot of people aren't, and I and I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a particularly high volume runner either. So, you know, I'm certainly not out doing hundred mile weeks like some people are. Uh, I would say I'm pretty low volume in terms of my training, so that helps. And you know, other little tips and tricks. You know, as you get older, you, you know, you you need more rest. You need more downtime. You can't do. You know, I used to I used to some weeks would I would do two, two to three intensity sessions. Now I know I can only handle one, you know, I'm sore and I I need to have at least two or three easy days after that. And I tend to work a little bit more on a kind of a a nine, 10 day schedule for for my own training plan rather than a a seven day schedule. So yeah, I, you know, I guess use my, my knowledge there. I I listen to my body a lot. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, what does a typical, I guess, so it wouldn't be a weekly for you, like a typical nine day or nine, 10 day training schedule look like for you. And you had mentioned like right before, like we kind of started recording here that you're training for a 120 mile race upcoming in about six weeks. So what, what's your training look like now? Like how many, I guess, like what proportion of runs are easy? How many days of like, Mm -hmm. are you running that sort of thing? Yeah. So I, I, Typically, you know, in a week, I would I would tend to run five, you know, five days in a week's uh, in a week. Um, uh, if I'm working on like a you know a, a ten day schedule, then I'll probably in that ten days I'll certainly have three days off. Um, I'll do, you know, I, I do one intensity session per week, uh, but I because because I sort of work on this slightly different schedule, one of those intensity sessions. So I, I, I run a group, uh, as you know, you've been to it. <laughs> I almost <laughs> died. Yeah, the, Thursday, <laughs> the Thursday group run, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy these days to, 
you know, sort of not putting a, a 100% effort on some of those sessions. So, yeah, so in 10 days, I'd probably do, you know, it would average, I guess, one and a half intensity sessions, uh, at least two rest days, probably three in, in 10 days. And most most of the rest of the runs are are done at a really easy pace, you know, conversational pace. Most run, Most runners, I think, do most of their training uh, too hard. Um, so I do a lot of, if you looked at my Strava, you know, it's a little embarrassing, you know, lots of my, lots of my, uh, my running is done really, really slowly. Plus I'm in the mountain, you know, you're in the mountains. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, inevitably the, the terrain often will dictate how quick you can go. Um, yeah. So I, and I, I lift weights. Um, I try and I periodize my, my uh, lifting a little bit this time of year when I'm kind of ramping up the run volume, um, I'll maybe only go go down to the weight room once a week, um, and I don't lift particularly heavy this time of year. But earlier in the year, I usually try and get in the weight room at least twice a week and lift heavier stuff in the early part of the season. Yeah. Okay, and then you're doing a lot of like obviously a lot of like leg lifting, I'm sure. But do you you do some upper body and stuff too as well? Like, what do you think is important for runners to focus on? Yeah, I do, um, you know, it's obviously, a, you know, certainly a lower limb focus. So I, I do lots of, uh, uh, so the heavier lifts, I'm doing deadlifts. Um, I'm doing uh, hex bar deadlifts mostly, um, but I'll do, I do back squats. I like back squats, um, but I'll also do, I'll do bench press uh, type exercises. And then I, I, you know, do a little bit of core stuff as well. And then I, I work on, on, you know, particular problem areas. I've, I've had an Achilles tendon injury, as you know. Um, so I, I always try and finish with some specific Achilles, Achilles type work. So that would be kind of early season working on the, you know, the heavier stuff. And then as a, as, as, a, as the run volume goes up, I tend to go a little bit more towards doing single leg type exercises. So split squats and step ups, step downs, those kind of, those kind of activities with, with lighter weights. And then this time of year, you know, when, when, when the run volumes, you know, getting up to its highest coming into a race, then I don't want the added stress of lifting heavy. So I usually, um, I'll usually be just kind of working on the, again, those problem areas, uh, you know, if I've got a, you know, if I got a sore, sore knee, maybe I'll be doing, you know, some, some work on that. I'll be using the foam roller a little bit more. I might be doing some band work, you know, stuff that more kind of rehab type exercises, I would say. Yeah. And that makes sense. And yeah, yeah, like say, as you mentioned, one of the best ways to help prevent injuries. And, um, I feel like a lot of runners, they only run. <laughs> so it's good. to Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, th- I think certainly as we, um, you know, as, as we get older, I mean, I think, I think all runners can benefit from doing strength training, going in the gym, but you know, r- runners by the, by, by their very, um, personalities and nature that they, they like running and they like being outdoors and they don't like going in the gym. Uh, but I, th- I think we all benefit from it. And I think, especially after the age of 40, I would, uh, absolutely recommend go- going in the gym. You know, it, it pays dividends in the long run, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, okay. So you had mentioned like as the volume ramps up for your race, so you're training for this 120 miler race, which yeah. is insane coming up in about six weeks so what is the max like what will your I guess okay my question so when you're training for 120 miles how long will the longest run in training be like what percentage of that will you actually do 
Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. That's a question people often ask, you know, especially when they're asking for kind of coaching advice. You know, what's a, how, how long should the long run be? And mm-hmm. and uh, you know, for me, if I was training for a for a hundred mile race, I actually like my long run. If I'm doing it on my own, will be you know it'll be shorter than you imagine. It'll be like forty to fifty k, I would say, um, would be my long run. Um, what I often try and do, if I'm doing a hundred mile race, I'll try and get in a 50 mile race, um, about four. So that's 80 K. That's a much longer effort. I can't do 80 K on my own. I just lose the motivation to do it if I'm doing it on my own, but you know, put it, if you put that into a race environment, you know, it's way easier and you have support and aid stations and all that. So, you know, I, I, I'll often try and get in a, a B, a B race, as I would call it, uh, about a month out. So yeah. I'd be for a hundred mile race. I'd try and do a 50 mile race, but generally, you know, if I'm not doing any racing leading into a hundred mile, like, yeah, 40, 50 K will be the absolute max that I'll do. And, and I find, you know, if you, if you try and do a, lot, a whole lot longer than that, you actually end up making your training overall worse because you're so beaten up from that long effort that, you know, maybe you can't run for another two or three days after that. So you actually ultimately end up doing less. So I think you're, you're better off doing, shorter runs um that they aren't ridiculous um that you know allow you to still train the next day and the day after that so yeah that makes sense like kind of less is more yeah Hmm. yeah exactly yeah Yeah. so for this race coming up like have you have you do you have any races that you've sent like do you have any 50 milers coming up in preparation or what's your approach yeah i mean the the marathon race was kind of the um you know that that was the focus uh it for this season leading into it and i i knew that the marathon would um take it out of me for sure so that was the marathon was in was in may um the 120 miler is in is in early august you know and i i I could probably have squeezed in another race somewhere in the middle of that but but actually i'm kind of glad that i i didn't because i found it's taken me so long to actually recover from the, the the road effort you know i would say it probably took me almost till now, like, you know, that's kind of six weeks. Yeah. Six weeks almost to, to feel like I'm kind of getting back to normal. Yeah. That's wild. Like, Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> Could you walk the next day? Like, how did you feel the next day? After the marathon? Yeah. Oh, I, oh, I couldn't walk. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, you know, the people who listen to your podcast, I'm sure they can, they can relate to that. You yeah. Know, got definitely. If you run yeah, we're all do, we're all doing funny walks the next day. I actually recently saw a video of uh, Elliot Kipchoge after the, the a couple of days after the uh, Boston Marathon. Uh, you know, the greatest marathon runner in the world, and he he looked just the same as the rest of us when he was coming down the steps. <laughs> it's good to know we're all human. <laughs> we're all human. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, I want to circle back. I have to ask you about one other thing. I so much I want to ask you, but okay. Yeah. One of the most impressive things I've come across that you did is you have the fastest known time on the double Canmore quad. And can you please just explain what this is? And like, it just blew my mind <laughs> when I read okay. this article. Yeah. yeah. So, so, the, so the Canmore, so the Canmore quad is, um, is kind of a, it's a challenge that we have in town. And if, if you stand downtown in Canmore and you, you know, to turn through 360 degrees and look at all the peaks around you. There's basically four peaks that surround Canmore. So on the north side of town, we have uh, Grotto Mountain and Lady MacDonald. 
Um, and, and each of these peaks on their own is a good day out, it's right? It's a solid day trip, yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then if you look to the uh, south side of town, you'll see the east end of Mount Rundle and Harling Peak. So these are kind of four iconic peaks that surround Canmore. And so the, the Canmore Quad was this thing that uh, I came across. And uh, I thank my my friend Phil Villeneuve for putting me onto this. And, and, and he said, oh, have you heard of the, the Canmore Quad? And this was back in, I think it was about 2006, we did our first one. And uh, Phil and I set off to, to try and try and run all, all of the peaks, basically starting downtown, run each summit. You have to run, we decided that you should run between the peaks um, as well. So there was no riding a bike or getting a, getting a ride up, up to the next uh, trailhead. So, so we ran the whole thing. Um, at that point, you know, we actually couldn't find much information about it. We knew it'd been done a handful of times by, by a variety of people, but it hadn't been done a whole lot. So anyway, Phil and I had a go at that. And I, I actually did, I, I didn't finish it the first time around. I, I did two and a half of the peaks. And I was like, okay, I've had enough of this. This is silly. So, so, uh, so I dropped out and Phil went on and uh, he, he finished the quad. And then there was a write-up in the paper and then, and then the quad kind of became this thing in, in town. Um, so anyway, the times got faster and faster. I, even, I, I did my own quad a bunch of times. Um, for a very short time, I had one of the quicker times. Um, it's been absolutely destroyed now that the, the caliber of the people who are coming in running these four peaks now is... Do you is know what the record is right now? You know, I think it's around about eight hours. Oh, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. It, I think hey, the- just for reference, it can take eight hours just to do Lady Mac. Like <laughs> if if you're like not booking it. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, these are yeah. these are like full on scrambles. They are, yeah. Yeah. Two of the uh certainly East End of Rundle is a is a scramble. That you know, there's some, you know, I wouldn't call it technical climbing, but there's definitely some places yeah. where you're scrambling up cliffs and you know, a fall would be pretty disastrous. And then Lady Lady McDonald, the true summit is uh is is a that's a full on it's like super a rich exposed walk, yeah. scramble. Yeah. Um and the total distance of a quad, a single quad, uh, I think it's about 54 kilometers, 53, 54 K, mm-hmm. depending on exactly which route you take. And there's five thousand meters of elevation. So so you know, a single quad is a is a big day out. Um, and so you know, somebody doing that in eight hours is just incredible just to put that into perspective the first time i I think the first time phil did it uh my friend phil when we did it back in the day i think he was around about 12 hours and then i i did one i knocked a half hour off it i think my first one was about 11 and a half hours i think i eventually ended up getting it down to about 10 but but anyway yeah it's just been completely destroyed now by by much better athletes than than me so so then i started to think okay well what's next what 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 other challenge is there and uh, how can i make this harder (laughs) how can i make it harder yeah yeah so i so i got it in my head that maybe a double quad was possible so so essentially you know running one quad and then running a second one immediately back to back so trying to link link two quads and i actually had a i had a go at it i think it was 20 2018 i I decided, okay, I'm going to give this a go. Um, and I, and I didn't succeed. So I, I did five peaks. So I did the, did the one quad and then I, um, I did grotto on the second lap. And by the end of that, I'd had enough. So, um, I, I, I dropped out and I told my wife, never let me do that again. <laughs> but then, so here's what then happened. So then the very following weekend, I heard that somebody had done it. And so I was like, Oh, somebody's done the double quad. And, and so there was something on social media and I saw this. I was like, oh man, I, 
I kind of wanted to be the first person ever to do a double quad. So I was a bit disappointed, but anyway, so I kind of let the, the whole idea drop. And then, and then it was a couple of years later, it was, it was kind of right in the midst of the pandemic. And I got word that, um, that when it had been, when the double quad had been done, the true summit of Lady Mac actually hadn't been done. So when you go up Lady Mac, uh, a few hundred meters before the, the, the real kind of tough expo scramble, there's, a, there's an area known as the tea house. Apparently at one point there was going to be a tea house up there. And that's where a lot of people will stop the scramble because it gets pretty serious after that. But I, I heard that on the original double quad attempt, um, that's where they turned around. So I heard this. I was like, ah, the true quad, the true double quad has not been done. Like to my mind, you gotta go, you gotta go to the summit of all the peaks, right? Yeah, of course. So, so so then I got this idea back in my head. Okay, I need to actually do a true double quad. So so yeah, so in 2020, this was kind of during the pandemic. All all the races I'd signed up for had had been canceled. Um, so yeah, I trained and went out and did it. And it was brutal. Wild. Okay. So I looked up, so it's 106 kilometers and it's over like 10,000 meters, meters of vertical elevation. Yeah. And I think you did it in just over 26 hours. Yeah. My, That's my, wild. I thought I could probably do it in 24 hours. And, and, and you know, as I say, if, if anybody else is stupid enough to have a go <laughs> and home motivated enough to give it a go, then I'm sure it can go into 24. And, and I was, I was actually on, I was pretty much on track for for doing it sub 24. I think my first quad was 11 and a half. And I, you know, I really didn't push too hard. And I, I knew I could do the second quad in about the same time. But then I, I got the weather was kind of bad and I got really cold. Um, so I ended up um taking a little nap um in my camper van. My wife was up crewing at one of the trailheads. And uh after six peaks, I got up there, I was absolutely frozen. So I kind of crawled into a sleeping bag in the van and uh took a nap, and the nap went on a little longer than I had planned uh so I, I lost a couple of hours there but anyway I was revived after the the warm nap so uh managed to finish the last two peaks <laughs> crazy um it, was there any point during that that you act that you wanted to quit was there like a low point I guess probably when you were like super cold there oh yeah but, for sure <laughs> so how, how did you just keep pushing onward like what like yeah how do you do it how do you do it I just like well so I mean, one of the things that I've learned with doing some of these things is that things don't always get worse, right? So you can you can be in the, you know, you can be in a dark place. You can be in a world of hurt thinking there's no possible way I can recover from this. And and things will totally turn around, right? I, I mean, I've, I've had this happen to me in multiple races where, where I'm like, okay, if I could drop out right now, I would do. And for whatever reason, I could, you know, you can't drop out based on where you are on the course. And then, you know, Sure enough, half an hour later, you actually feel pretty good and things start turning around. So I've had that happen a number of times. So um, I had a pretty low point on the double quad on Lady Mac lap two. Um, I had to take a little nap um, on, on the side of the trail. I, I found a really comfortable rock to lie on. <laughs> so I took, I took a 15 minute nap. I was feeling really, I was feeling really nauseated. One of, one of the problems that often happens is the stomach starts to go go south with these efforts so um so i had a little nap i woke up i was feeling pretty terrible actually and then i had the hardest you know the hardest kind of scrambling um to 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 be done there to get to the summit of lady mac lab two and and it was actually there was it was 
3 a.m. I think it was 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. It was dark. There were a few little snowflakes coming down. And I actually had to really, really concentrate hard because it's, you know, it's like a knife edge going along to the to the summit. It's actually pretty exposed. Um, and, and it's tough even in daylight. So, you know, I knew I was tired and, you know, it was super important not to make a mistake there. So, so my whole focus was on just, you know, staying alive there. So, uh, things turned around and, you know, I got to the summit, started coming down. I was like, you know, I actually feel pretty good. Yeah. My friend Allison was with me and she was feeding me pierogies, which, uh, seemed to do the job. And, uh, yeah. So it turned around and yeah, I got cold on the next peak, of course, you know, going up the hill and took a nap there, but, uh, that was really just feeling cold. And then my wife reminded me that, you know, this was my second go at this. And did I really want to have to come back again and have a third attempt? So, <laughs> so for her uh, to keep pushing you. <laughs> yeah. So she's quite a runner herself, by the way. Oh yeah. My wife say. is a very accomplished runner. Yeah. Yeah. She, 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 she wouldn't say it, but she's, uh, yeah, she's a, she's she's very a good. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And she joined me actually on the last two peaks. So she did, she did, uh, East End of Runland, um, and hauling and that was after crewing for the, the entire event and you know as anybody who's crewed an ultra knows you know that's it, it's pretty exhausting being the crew so yeah so yeah my wife's a machine so we yeah we um yeah she told me to basically okay book your ideas up and get out the van and let's get this finished so i did <laughs> awesome. a little tough love at times is uh it goes a long way. Yeah, no, it's needed. And it, it like to her credit, it would be hard to like push someone on someone that you love and that you see this hurting so much and struggling so much. It's hard to like give them that tough love. So yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, yeah. And I think, I think cause she knows me, she kind of, she kind of knows when, you know, when, when I need to hear that, you know, when I need to, to have the tough love versus the, uh, the sympathy. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I could, oh, there's some stories I could tell about some of the things she said to me during races to get me moving, but, uh, probably, probably not, uh, not yeah, the we'll save those broadcast. Ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Well, no, that's just like such an insane accomplishment. And to your knowledge, no one has attempted this since. I, I don't think so. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, good on you if you want to give that yeah, a Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I guess if somebody does it twice and beats my time, I'll probably have to go and try it three times. So, <laughs> <laughs> crazy but you know Um, there there are some amazing link-ups going on in 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 the rockies now um i I won't uh i won't say what's going on right now but a friend of mine is has an awesome um uh accomplishment that's uh that he's going to try in 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 a week or so yeah just mind-blowing yeah okay well i'll be uh watching can't wait to hear about that that one yeah (laughs) yeah um i think this would be a good point to kind of switch into um your coaching philosophy and your coaching style because we were talking about like the tough love versus like when to push so yeah. you like coach elite elite athletes and endurance athletes is yeah. are they are they all runners that you coach yeah so so i um i work for a company called evoke endurance um they're a company out of the u.s and uh, most of their clients are actually mountaineers but uh but I coach mostly uh, mostly runners. I, I do have um, I do have a couple of athletes who are you know training for mountaineering objectives as well. But uh, yeah, it's most mostly runners that I I coach, and and of, of all abilities as well. You know, from you know I I have uh, a girl that I'm coaching right now in in uh, in Austria, and she she's training to do a 
a, a 1000 kilometer fastest known time attempt um next week she's going to start it's going to be 16 she's going to run 80k a day for a 16 days so i mean obviously she's kind of you know at the top end of the sport to you know i coach i coach somebody who wants to go hiking in patagonia and have a you know get get through it injury free and enjoy you know a week of a week of hiking so yeah so i mean i have all kinds of uh athletes and i think you know i think one of the myths out there is that is that you know, to have a coach, you need to be an elite athlete. And I think, I think in many cases, and it, to, to me, it's often more rewarding coaching people that they're non-elites actually, you know, they, they, nothing really beats watching, helping them get to their goals. So, so yeah. So cool. That's so cool. Um, you're, I thought it was called switchback coaching or is that something separate? Yeah. So sw- switchback coaching was kind of my, that was my own thing. I was, I was, my own little company that I started. Um, so I, I still have a couple of athletes um, there that I coach, okay. but uh, I joined this this larger group out of the oh, US uh, recently. Yeah, very cool. So you're coaching athletes that aren't even in the same country, like yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I, I mean, I, I do have some. I have somebody. Um, I have a couple of local athletes here, but yeah, I, I coach. Uh, I coach a guy in New Delhi, um, and he's he's training to hike the Greater Himalaya Trail. Uh, cool. I have a I have a bunch of um runners and mountaineers in the Pacific Northwest in Washington. And uh yeah, I have uh a few others scattered throughout the US. Yeah. And then the girl in 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 uh she's in Austria. Yeah. <laughs> that's so awesome. Such yeah. a variety too, like so many different challenges. Like that's that's so cool. That'd be fun. It is, and, yeah, it's super fun. Yeah. So I know like you specifically don't believe in like the one size fits all training programs that people can just download off the internet. Um, yeah. So obviously you take a very personalized tailored approach to your athletes. Um, what are some of like, I guess the big factors that you take into consideration when you're designing a program, like what are kind of the things that people like that stand out where a single, like one size fit all training program would work for them? Yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think there's definitely a role for those, mm-hmm. those one size fits all type programs. You know, I think if you're if you're somebody who's just starting out, you know, if you if if you if your goal is to run a 10k or a 5k, you know, and you mm-hmm. download a plan off the internet, it'll get you there, right? Um, so I I think there's definitely a role for those for those kind of um, plans. But you know, I think to think that you know the the human body is such a complex organism and to think that there's one way to to achieve your goal that's going to work for everybody, I think is you know way too simplistic. So yeah, so I mean I, you know I use a platform called Training Peaks for for uh, for my coaching, and you know honestly what I what I listen to mostly is I listen to their comments, you know, and, and it's amazing how you can you can pick up on how they're feeling and, you know, whether that's physically, mentally, whatever, you know, you can pick up on that. And I think especially as you build up a relationship with, with clients over a number of years, you know, you, you start to detect the tone in their comments on training peaks and, you know, and I certainly pick up the phone and talk to these people as well. Uh, So, so yeah, I listen to their comments. I mean, obviously I try, you know, I, I, um, you know, I, I do plans sort of week to week and, you know, we look and we look at how the previous week went. So it's all, it's all very custom. One of the things that we're seeing now is that artificial intelligence is coming into the, the coaching realm now as well. And they're, you know, they're 
variety of different companies out there offering AI products for coaching. But I think for me, nothing really takes away that kind of human aspect and that um, that personal aspect. So, so yeah, I can I can see AI becoming a thing in in run coaching, but I'm, I'm not sure it will ever replace um, you know direct human to human contact. No, I, I believe that. I feel like there's something you just like, it's, it's a special relationship that develops between an athlete and the coach, I think. And you tend to, you learn things about each other. It's a, it's a different type of relationship for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. It is. And, 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 you know, one of the questions that I always ask my athletes when I, when, when we do, we do kind of an intake, um, mm-hmm. when, they, when they're looking, interested in coaching. And, you know, one, one of the questions that I always ask them is, you know, are you looking for a, a drill sergeant or a cheerleader? You know, and 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 you know, it's a it's an easy question, but some some people need that. You know, they need the tough love. They they need to say, okay, listen, you need to, uh, you know, you've missed a couple of workouts. Some people need that kind of somebody cracking the whip behind them to to get them uh, motivated. And and some people, some people just they, they need somebody to tell them that they're doing great, and um, you know, to encourage them. And you know, I have a couple of athletes like that, and. You know, they they have a bad day at work and they have somebody hopping on at their own work and they come home and they're miserable. And, you know, the last thing they need is me telling them that, that they had a crappy workout. Right. So, you know, those people, I think, um, you know, you can really you can really help those athletes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what makes good coaches stand out from just like sub like okay coaches is being able to like recognize what motivates and how to get the best out of people when they are so different. That's, yeah. 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 And reassure, you know, reassuring them. I, I have a, I have a, I have a bunch of athletes right now who, you know, who've got their big events coming up in the next week or two, and, you know, they're they're in their taper phase, and everybody goes a little nuts in the taper uh, during the taper. They feel like they're losing their fitness, and that all those those gains that they've made are gonna, you know, fade away, and you know, and they get, you know, everybody gets little niggles and aches and pains during the taper. I, I don't know if it's the same for fighters like you, but uh, everybody gets, you know, I get a little ache in my knee or my hip when I'm tapering. You know, I, I, I almost I almost welcome it now. You know, I know that it's a good sign. You know, I'm, 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 I'm getting to be well tapered when that comes along. So sometimes, you know, I had a conversation with an athlete today. You know, she was saying, oh, you know, I'm feeling super stiff and sore. And, you know, I've got my big event coming up this weekend. And, you know, I. I, she, all she needed was some reassurance that you know what this is totally normal. This is how you should feel. This is this is this is a very common uh, experience. So, you know, I think that's where that's where I can help these people for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. You, I want to go back to one thing you had mentioned earlier that one of the mistakes a lot of runners make is they they're running like their intensity is almost too hard all the time. And mm-hmm. that most of that your running that you do is like, it's, it's, it's slow. It's like these long, slow, easy runs. And I think that's something that's becoming more like, there's more awareness around it. Like the whole like zone two training and um, yeah. yeah, like not running in that gray zone, but can yeah. you just kind of expand on that a little bit more and yeah. how would someone know if they're running too hard? Yeah. So, so um the whole zone two thing has taken off, right? You know, this is the latest, uh, the latest trend is doing everything in zone two, but I'll, I'll tell you now for, for, for a lot of people zone two, especially for fit athletes, zone two is quite tough. Um, so in, in athletes who've got a really good aerobic base, 
Um, those, you know, fit athletes, those zone two efforts are actually, they're pretty stressful. And so you don't actually want to do too many, too many of those. Now in the very aerobically unfit athlete, somebody who's coming from the couch and starting a run program, um, those zone two efforts are, are, um, just where they want to be, because that's where you're going to build that aerobic fitness, uh, most rapidly. So, we, so we, we tend to program a lot of zone two workouts in the newer athletes, but once, once, um, once they've improved their aerobic fitness, we actually do a lot more zone one um, type stuff. And zone zone one, you know, is easy enough that you can you can recover from it and uh, and recover well enough so that you can do your your prescribed intensity on the days when when we prescribe some intensity. But uh, yeah, I think I think you know at least eighty. If you look at if you look at elite runners, you know this is the best way to. You know how, how do we, how do we figure out what works? We look at the best in the world, and they they spend eighty to ninety percent of their time going easy. Yeah, yeah. So how, um, yeah, in, in answer to your question, how do you figure out these things? Mm-hmm. You know, I I use I mean I use some simple tests. You know, there's the simple kind of talk test. You know, if you can if you can hold a conversation and speak full sentences when you're running along, you're probably in zone one, right? That's a that's a good intensity to 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 be in. Um, if you're if you're struggling to get two or three words out, you're probably in zone three. You know, you're probably close to your threshold. So, so so the the simple talk test is a is a is a good way. Um, if you can run along, um, breathing with your mouth closed, breathing through your nose. You know, if you're not stuffed up, but you're you know you, you can run. You can you can do the entire run breathing through your nose. That will also very likely put you below your aerobic threshold you know that'll put you below zone two um and probably zone one if you're fit um we i i do some we do some uh we have some prescribed workouts to try and figure out these zones um using heart rate so i use a cardiac drift test which is you know essentially a one-hour treadmill run or a a one-hour flat outdoor run and we just look, we look at how much cardiac drift occurs. So that the athlete wears a heart rate monitor and they record the session. And we, once they're warmed up, we, we just get them to run at a constant pace or, you know, at a constant speed on the treadmill. And uh, we look at what the heart rate does and we compare the second half to the first half. And, uh, you know, if you're, if your cardiac drift is around about 5% from, you know, first half to second half, then that's probably right about your, your starting heart rate was probably right around your aerobic threshold, which is top of zone two. Okay. So there's, so that's one way to work, to work it out. And then the other, uh, and you can find these things online, how, how to perform these tests. And then the more stressful test is the, the anaerobic threshold test, which is a bit more like your sort of traditional lactate threshold test. And, uh, again, there's different ways to do that. You can do that with finger pricks and ear pricks measuring blood lactates uh, most most athletes don't have access to that so we use a field test and basically get them to run as hard as they can uphill for 30 minutes <laughs> it's, oh, it's a pretty brutal test yeah. yeah no kidding i think i'd like the flat one hour treadmill test a little better <laughs> yeah yeah so we so we do this uphill time trial and, you know i look at their average heart rate for the last 20 to 30 minutes and that's probably right about top of zone three so the anaerobic threshold yeah yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, yeah. I've been playing around with trying to do a little bit more of like the the long, slow, like zone one, zone two stuff myself. And I've found like, I don't like running with the chest strap heart rate monitor. So I just have my watch and I don't know how accurate the wrist strap watches are, but I've found yeah. just like making sure I can nasal breathe the entire time, a pretty good like proxy for it. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you can breathe, if you, if you're jogging along and you can breathe through your nose, or you can have a com- you know full conversation mm-hmm. with somebody without being out of breath, then you you're 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 in the right kind of ballpark. And you have to remember that these you know they're, they're, these things are all a continuum anyway, right? You know, this there isn't a hard cutoff where you know this this is a, this is zone top of zone one, this is top of zone two. You know, these are just estimates, um, but these little tests can keep you in roughly the you know, and in, in the right ballpark. And as you said at the start, most most people do train too hard. If I if I just took a you know an inexperienced runner and said, "Hey, go out and do a run," you know, most of the time they would be running too hard to you know to to get a lot of fitness gains. Um, but they feel like they're doing a workout. So mm-hmm. that kind of gray zone, you know, it, it's kind of slightly hard. It's not super uncomfortable, but it's slightly hard, and you finish it with sweat, and you're yeah. out feel of like breath. You did a good thing, and yeah, and some calories. Feel, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and you feel yeah. like you've worked. So, okay, that was a good thing to do. And you know, I think if you look at all these online, you know, classes and things that you can do, you know, like you know the Peloton and Zwift and all that, all this stuff there, you know, most of those things I think are way too intense, and they're fun, and they sell, and um, you know prescribing people zone one zone two runs is kind of boring at the end of the day and that, that's a conversation that i have with people that i coach i tell them you know what, a lot of this you know especially when they're new a lot of this training is going to be kind of boring you know get get used to the fact that you're going to be you know running really slow and you're probably going to be walking most of the hills and, well, and it's like almost like there's an like an ego aspect to it too because people are going to be passing you and like it, yeah people don't like being passed <laughs> when they could be going faster you know what i mean no and, pe- and people don't like their and, and I mean, I even hinted at this earlier, right? You know, people don't like that data being up on, on their Strava, are they? You <laughs> yeah. know, like, wow, you know, I did a seven minute per kilometer run today, you know? So, so yeah, it, it's out there and yeah. But I think, you know, most, most people will be amazed how, how much faster they will ultimately get by spending a few months going slow. And, yeah. and, and, and we see that and, and the cardiac drift test, I, I repeat that, you know, what, you know, if we're with new athletes, we, we repeat that. It's a really non-stressful test to do. You can do that test every week if you want. And it's amazing how, you know, six weeks of running slow and you'll, you'll see a huge improvement in your, That's cool. in your, um, in, in your aerobic fitness. Yeah. I might try that one out. Actually, that one's a little more easy to monitor. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that you have every Thursday, you do a running group in Canmore and you have some crazy workouts and I, <laughs> I uh, had the pleasure of joining you for one of them and it wasn't, wasn't too bad. Like I survived it. It was tough, but you were yeah. telling me about one of your favorite workouts. I think you call it the man maker. And then there's a version of it called the woman maker. And I would just, <laughs> can you please just share what this is? <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the man, I, I did not name this by the way, it sounds very sexist this, but yeah. So I, I didn't name it, but the, yeah, the, the man maker, um, I actually think this came from Rob Cra, who, um, you know, if you don't know, he's a, he's one of the, uh, one of the elite, um, 100 mile races that we've had over the last decade. He's won a number of big races. I think it was his workout, but basically it's eight by three minutes. Um, it's, it's a really tough workout, actually, um, three minutes hard and you take between two and three minutes rest, just easy jogging or standing in between. So we often do this on a hill. Um, I often prescribe a lot of my intensity, on, on hills just because it's it it seems to reduce the injury risk mm. um so yeah eight by three minutes that's the man maker and then one of my friends uh uh she came up with uh the the, the woman maker which was basically nine by three minutes 
Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> is it so? It's just like just the eight by three, or I thought wasn't there like and then you, you have to do like thirty seconds after, or is it? Oh uh, yeah, we said, you know we sometimes yeah. I mean, sometimes you add on to it. I'm pretty sure. I do sometimes add on a few sprints at the end. Yeah, actually, my fa- my favorite workout is what I favorite i mean obviously all of these things have a you know they yeah. have a, a a time and a place and you know you you don't just do these workouts willy-nilly at any point in the season but yeah one of the one of my favorite workouts is i call it the 555 and uh uh i like these kind of blended workouts where you where you have different intensities yeah i i've, I've just grown to really enjoy these workouts so what the 555 is you do five by three minutes with two minutes rest then you do five by 30 seconds hill sprints so up a you know a really steep hill at about one mile pace and then you finish it off with five by 15 second all-out flat sprints on the road yeah i think that's the one i was maybe thinking of yeah (laughs) it might have been yeah one of the guys in our run club suggested that that really in order to hit all systems we should really finish it off with five heavy deadlifts (laughs) (laughs) but we haven't done that yet Uh, i know it's coming up (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Crazy. No, that's so wild. Let's dive into some of the sports medicine. So we kind of started talking right about your running history here, but can you briefly share just a little bit about your medical background and then how you started practicing sports medicine? And yeah, yeah, briefly to just kind of give a bit of an introduction here. Sure. Yeah. So I I trained in the UK, um, went to med school in the UK, five years, Newcastle University. And then I did my, I did my, um, uh, family practice training in the UK. So that's kind of the equivalent of uh, GP training in the UK is kind of like your family medicine residency here. Um, and then I, and then we moved to Canada in 99 uh, and I worked as a family doc in Saskatchewan for almost four years before we came out to the mountains. And then when I, when we came out to the mountains, um, uh, we, I, I was working as a family doc, but one of the, lo- a couple of the um, Canadian national teams train here in Canmore. So over at the Nordic Center, we have uh, a training center there for the biathletes, um, cross-country skiers, and the para-nordic para teams. And uh, the biathlon team was looking for a team doctor. They didn't have a team doctor. I, I knew a guy who was working for the team. He said, oh, hey, we need a doc, so would you like to do that? So so that's kind of how I drifted into sport medicine. And then after you know a couple of years of doing that, I was like, okay, I really should uh, you know get my sport med qualification here. Uh, I mean, there's lots of MSK stuff, of course, as you know, in in family practice, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we, we you see lots of lots of sports injuries in family practice. But uh, yeah, I went up and did my uh, did my sport med uh, diploma and haven't looked back. I started taking some referrals, went to do MSK ultrasounds and uh after a couple of years of doing that i was like you know i, I get enough referrals that i can do this full time and i really enjoy it it's my passion so so yeah. i became a full-time sport med doc yeah so much fun i i truly loved like the two weeks i spent at your practice um so you mentioned you work with the canadian national biathlon team yeah. um i think the cross-country team and the paranordic ski teams right yeah I have correct. that right yeah. what's yeah. i guess like what's the best part of working with these athletes they're all consummate professionals, right? You know, they, they look after themselves. They, um, they're the world's best. I mean, it's super exciting when you, when these people are in your office all the time, and then you can, you know, a week later, you're watching them race a world cup in Europe. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, they're, they're a fun, they're a fun group. And, um, you know, I think, I think sport med docs can really make a, you know, make a difference to, to some of these athletes. So, 
yeah, I mean, they're just a, the, the paranoidic team as well. I mean, the, our, our paranoidic team um, is, is without a doubt the best team in the world in terms of um, paranoidic sports. Uh, the Canadian team, we, we win the most gold medals on the World Cup circuit. And, you know, some of the things that, some of the challenges that those athletes have had to overcome are, you know, in, incredible. And uh, they, they, you know, the paranoidic team might always say that they, they create the least work for me. They are, you know, I think they're, they're all so good at looking after themselves and managing, you know, they've all had huge struggles with their disabilities. And um, yeah, they're, you know, they're just a great group to work with. Yeah. That's so cool. I remember I, you were showing me like a couple of the athletes and we were watching races and it's just like truly inspiring and yeah. they just don't complain about things. I think that's what you had mentioned too. It's yeah, just they, like to them, they have just they a greater range. They've experienced so much worse that like normal people would complain about these minor injuries or things. And these people, it's just nothing to them. Absolutely. They, they've, they've had such a lot to deal with in their lives and um, yeah, they're, they're, they're great to work with. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun you know, watching, watching them on the world stage, uh, you know, win medals. I mean, that's, that, that's what it's all about, right. For these, for these people. So yeah. Yeah. no, it's so cool to be like a part of that. Um, you, okay. So you obviously see a lot of like, you have great experience with like running injuries just from your own personal background. And mm. obviously like, we don't have time today to go over like all the common injuries you see, but I thought it might just be kind of helpful. Um, there's a lot of runners that listen to this podcast. What are some of the common like running injuries that you might see and what do you look at on your assessment? Yeah. So we, we see, you know, in terms of, in terms of what I see in runners, I, we, we see a lot of, um, obviously lower limb injuries, um, foot and ankle stuff. I seem to see a lot of, so lots of Achilles tendinopathy, uh, plantar fasciopathy or fa plantar fasciitis as, as it's more commonly known. Um, and then bone stress injuries, you know, so I would say, you know, I definitely see tibial stress fractures. Uh, we see the occasional femoral neck stress fracture. I see stress fractures in the foot. Um, so, you know, we certainly see a lot, a lot of bone stress injuries. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, you know, the common tendinopathies, I would say, uh, that we see in runners, yeah, foot and ankle, um, around the knee, we'll often see IT band syndrome, a common one that I see in the office. Um, and then in older athletes, uh, particularly older females, we often see things like gluteal tendinopathy uh, in runners. So those are kind of some of the common things that I see. And then our assessment, you know, our assessment, you know, first thing is always good history and history and uh, comprehensive exam. And uh, I, I, I use the ultrasound in the office us as well we, we we can you know pop an ultrasound on for 10 seconds and you know that that can certainly help to rule out things rule out tears and tears that may be more serious and then um and then obviously you know uh if necessary we get a biomechanical assessment with 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 one of our physiotherapists we have a good physio team in, in clinic um it's amazing how many times we see uh runners with injuries and nobody's actually ever watched them run right so we we will sometimes throw them on a treadmill and actually watch them run video them and, and take a look you know do they have any little funny quirky gate uh, uh gate abnormalities that that, that that might be leading to injury so those are things that we can do in our assessment and then treatment you know treatment typically involves physiotherapy to start with um you know sometimes it's amazing how many how many Times you know people haven't thought to see a physio or they haven't been referred to a physio. Nobody suggested they see a physiotherapist, and 
Um, you know, all, all they really need is they, they need some education and some simple exercises to, to help manage that problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, again, so comprehensive. And I think that's one of the things that I really like, liked when I worked with you is like, you had the physios there, you had the orthopedic surgeons and is very like collaborative, like approach to these injuries and yeah. with the ultrasound and everything is like really cool. Um, yeah. you had like early on, we were talking about kind of running through pain and running through discomfort <laughs> to anyone listening, like what type of pain is okay to run through? And when yeah. would you say like, you should stop and get this checked out? Like, is yeah, there a way to differentiate or is it kind of a good just, question? You know? Yeah, this is yeah. a great question, right? I really like this question. You know, how do you figure out what's normal pain and, and, and what's, what's bad pain, you know, cause to, mm-hmm. as we've talked about, there's good pain, there's bad pain, right? So, so um, yeah, I would say that pain, in general, that is, that is mild, that doesn't get worse during exercise, isn't worse afterwards, and it isn't worse the next day. You know, those, those are kind of often the cardinal rules that I use. So, you know, if somebody's got a plantar fasciitis or an Achilles tendon problem, and they can go and run, you know, they go run an easy flat run, and they have a little bit of pain, it's two out of 10, if you want to put a number on it, two or three out of 10, you know, it's kind of an acceptable pain. Yeah, I can feel it, but it's not terrible. And then they finish their run, the pain isn't flared up, it's not worse, and they get up the next morning and it's no worse. That tells you you tolerated what you just did. Tendons like to be tendons like to be exercised. They don't like rest. Um, often with a lot of these injuries, if you if you have a period of complete rest, all that you'll find is that you sometimes get stiffer, you get more sore, and it becomes a bit disheartening. Um, other things that I look for, uh, obviously, you know, joint swelling, that's never a good sign. You know, if you go for, if you got a sore knee and you go for a run and the next day you got a big swollen knee, that's not a good sign. That's something that maybe you should, uh, have somebody take a look at and then sharp, you know, sharp, severe pains that, um, that seem to progress as you, as you, as you, uh, go through your workout. So, you know, you start off with, you've got a little pain of three, four out of 10, and then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then it's a sharp pain, you know, a sharp, severe pain, and you have to stop and you're limping home. You know, your, your body is not, to- not tolerating that real well. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's when it's a good time to see somebody. That's, that's helpful. Actually, it's good to have just yeah. some guidance around these things. Um, yeah. in your experience as sports medicine physician, when should athletes use heat therapy versus cold therapy? I know this is like, yeah, it's, there's yeah. some controversy over what to use when. There, there, there is. And, you know, ice baths are the, you know, have the been latest touted, thing. <laughs> touted as being the latest thing. And most of the evidence suggests that whilst icing an injury can make it feel better and will decrease inflammation, maybe that's actually not what we should be aiming for. Yeah, when we want things uh, to heal. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think ice baths have a role for sure. Um, and, and I think, I think ice baths have a role more in, in, in performance when we're thinking about performance, you know, you know, athletes who maybe are in sports where they have multiple bouts of, of multiple events, you know, either in the same day or over multiple days, I think that's where the ice bath can be helpful, um, as a performance enhancing uh, strategy. So, you know, if you're, if you have a heat in the morning, you have a heat in the afternoon. Yeah, sure. You know what, sit in an ice bath, that's, that's probably going to help you to feel better. And, and, and there is some value in that. But I think when we're talking about injury management, I think that, you know, slapping a, a bag of ice on, on the injury, whilst it will make it feel better, perhaps isn't the, the best thing in the long run. 
my typical advice will be, you know, if you roll your ankle, I'm fine with using ice for a day or two. After that, I think you want to be um, moving away from that as your prime strategy. All that, all that icing it does shuts down the blood flow, uh, decreases inflammation. Inflammation is the body's attempt to, to actually try and heal the injury. So a day or two at most of icing the injury, I think is, is, uh, is, is sensible. And then heat, I think, you know, heat, heat is helpful as a warming up strategy. You know, if you've ever had a, a sore joint, you know, often if you've been in the shower, you've had a hot shower or a hot tub or something like that, often, often that joint will feel quite a bit, quite a bit better. Um, so I, yeah, I, I like heat as a warming up type strategy pre-exercise. Um, and af afterwards, you know, sure, if you've got a new injury, ice it for a day or two, but after that, probably heat is actually more valuable or heat ice, you know, contrast baths are helpful. I don't know if there's a ton of data on whether or not that actually does promote healing, but um, but I think certainly there's increasing evidence that that icing injuries ex to excess impairs healing. Okay, and, that's... And, and, and for the same, you know, on that same note, using anti-inflammatories as well. Okay, that's actually yeah. very helpful. Thank you for clearing yeah. that up. It's, yeah, <laughs> people like to use cold way too often, I think. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, the last kind of topic I'd like to talk to you about is, um, injections. And this is something that I saw a lot in your practice and they're yeah. becoming very popular in the sports medicine world. Yeah. Um, and there's just a few different types of injections that, um, steroids yeah. like HA, PRP. I was wondering if you could just go over like them briefly and just kind of yeah. explain when you would use each and yeah. Yeah, your thoughts on them. Yeah. So in our clinic, we use, we use, um, the, the three main injectables that we use would be, um, steroids, uh, which, which, uh, have a, have a role for sure. I'll come on to that. Um, hyaluronic acid, um, and, uh, platelet rich plasma PRP. These are the three common injections in most sport med practices in, in, in Canada. So, so steroid is basically a super strong anti-inflammatory and, um, it, the nice thing about steroid is it works, you know, it takes people's pain away. I, I can almost guarantee if you've got a sore joint and I stick steroid in there, maybe it's, it, it, it's going to feel better within one to two days. It's cheap. It works quickly. Um, and, and it almost always works. There's almost always a significant improvement, but the downsides with steroids are, are certainly that, you know, if they're overused, we know that there are negative effects on joint cartilage. There are negative effects on soft tissues like tendons and ligaments. So we, we, we want to use steroids really judiciously. Um, in my practice, most of the patients who are having steroid injections are on a wait list to have a joint replacement, I would say. And, you know, they've usually been my patient for a number of years. And essentially, that's about all that's working now. And then and at that point, it's about giving them some quality of life, enabling them to keep moving um, live their lives more normally whilst they wait for their new knee or their new hip, you know, so that that's where we often use, um, steroids, uh, in clinic. Um, hyaluronic acid is a, um, is a molecule that we all, we have in all of our synovial joints. It's part of our synovial fluid. And we think that we think that the synovial fluid in our joints, um, it's, it's, it cushions and lubricates the joint. And we know there are some studies showing that joints which are arthritic are deficient in hyaluronic acid. So we basically inject this, um, this thick gel into the joint and it can, uh, for some patients, it doesn't work for everybody, but it can give, um, them pretty good and long lasting relief. Um, it takes a little longer to work than steroids. It typically takes two, two or three weeks before patients get the full effect, but it can last up, you know, in some cases up to a year. 
So, so we use quite a bit of that and it's certainly a safer option than injecting a joint with steroids. So, you know, if I had to choose one over the other, um, I'd, I'd put hyaluronic acid in a, in a joint rather than steroid. Although, as I say, it doesn't always work and it's more expensive as well, significantly more expensive. Um, so patients sometimes struggle with the cost of it. And then lastly, one of the newer treatments that we use is, um, is uh, platelet-rich plasma, PRP. And the idea of PRP is that we, <clears throat> we take blood from the patient, we spin it in a centrifuge, and we filter out the red blood cells. And sometimes we filter out the white blood cells as well, but we're left with platelets, which are little blood clotting molecules. And their job in life normally is to plug little leaks in blood vessels. Um, so we spring leaks in our blood vessels all, all day long, and we don't bleed to death because the platelets in your blood stick there and they plug the hole. But then they have to repair the blood vessel wall, the hole in it. So um, they release growth factors into that tissue and that heals the heals the uh, the blood vessel wall. So I guess at some point somebody decided let's inject this stuff into a, an arthritic knee or a, an injured Achilles tendon and, and see see what kind of response we get there. And I, and the platelets stick to the damaged areas and they release growth factors. They switch on local stem cells and um, they promote a healing response in the tissue and um, so, so we, you know, we get reasonably good results with, with PRP as well. Again, it's a more expensive procedure that isn't covered by healthcare. So cost is certainly an issue, but again, very safe. It's a safe treatment. Um, so we use that for in osteoarthritic joints. We use that in um, rotator, small rotator cuff tears. We use that in various tendinopathies. Um, and we find that, that it works pretty well. Yeah. So cool. It's neat to have yeah. so many, I guess, options available, but available to patients now. And I think it's yeah. going to be exciting as we get more and more research on some of these like newer therapies and modalities. And hopefully like, I would love to see like hyaluronic acid eventually be covered under most benefits yeah. plans and things like that, because it is expensive. It but- is expensive. And, and I, and I think, you know, I think we haven't really quite figured out exactly where all of these different things mm-hmm. slot into the, into the treatment program. So, so, you know, why does one arthritic knee respond really well to PRP and, and, and the next knee doesn't, you know, and I think there are things that we haven't really quite teased out of the, out of the studies yet, you know, and, you know, I can see time at some time in the future where we pull a bit of fluid off a knee and we analyze it and we, we look to see, you know, is, is this joint deficient in hyaluronic acid? Is this a joint that looks like maybe it would respond better to a different type of therapy? Is this a really inflammatory joint? You know, maybe this joint actually would do better with steroid. Um, uh, so, you know, I think we haven't quite teased out all of the, the nuances there as to when to use it. So, you know, we, we do come in at a little bit, I think with a, you know, when we're using injections, we, it's a bit of a shotgun approach, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we give the patient some options and and they, they help choose and we, we try them. But I would say that, all, you know, all of these injectable options there, they're, they're certainly not first line treatments and we, you know, nothing, you know, if you've, if you've got a, an arthritic knee, then often, you know, weight loss, exercise, strengthening, these are often, these are certainly the, the first line treatments, um, working with a good therapist first. And then, you know, if you need additional help, then, then we think about some of these things. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I'm all about the lifestyle approach first. So mm-hmm. <laughs> happy yeah. to hear you say that. <laughs> yes. No, this has been so great, Dr. Reed. Thank you. Um, uh, as I guess we close out here, um, you've been very generous with your time. One of the things I just always like to ask people is if um, as we like close out, what is one thing you'd like people listening to take away from this conversation or any like one lasting thought, whether it's related to anything you've learned through years of endurance racing or through your sport medicine practice? 
anything that haven't asked you about? Yes. The one, the one thing I'll say is you're stronger than you think you are. Right. I think, I think most people will be surprised, would be surprised if they set themselves a goal, how tough they really are. Um, there's a race in the U S called the uh, Leadville 100 and, uh, the race director famously stands up before that race and he tells everybody in the crowd that they're tougher than they think they are and that they can do it. And uh, I think that's a, you know, that's a, a good thing to bear in mind uh, when you're starting out on an exercise program and, you know, things, you know, things are feel tough and it's, you know, you will be sore. You, if you're starting an exercise program, you're going to be sore and you're going to find it hard, right? But stick with it, you know, stick with it. And uh, you are tougher than you think you are. And, uh, you know, exercise is a panacea. It really is. You know, I, I, I don't know of any, I don't know of any medical condition. That exercise makes it worse. Yeah. No, I think that's a great note to close on. Thank you. Um, if anyone listening wants to reach out, wants to follow what you're doing, wants to like, um, I know you're pretty active on Instagram. Um, where would you direct people to? Yeah. So you can find me, um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find me uh, Twitter for political debates, uh, <laughs> um, which I try and stay out of, uh, but Instagram. Yeah. My, my Instagram handle is Canmore MD. Perfect. Yeah. I'll link below in the show notes so people can just click and find you there. And if anyone wants to work with you, like if they're interested in coaching, where would you direct them? Yeah. So if you're interested in coaching, um, the best place to go is to go to evokeendurance.com. Um, there's a ton of great resources on there describing some of these tests that we talked about earlier. Um, and you can, uh, we, there's a number of different, uh, options there to suit different budgets. You can sign up for, uh, you know, custom coaching, which is, you know, one-on-one coaching with me or one of the other coaches. And then there's, you know, you can sign up for a six week custom plan that where we have an interview and an intake and we discuss your goals. And then we, we, we make a plan designed specifically for you that there are a few cookie cutter plans on there as well. But, uh, I'd say most of the athletes that we, end up coaching, they, they come either for a custom plan or for a custom one-on-one coaching. So evokeendurance.com. Perfect. Again, I'll put that in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you. This has been so good. I've loved hearing about your adventures and best of luck in the 120 miler coming up in a few weeks here. Um, Thanks, sure Cassie. Crush it. <laughs> Thanks, Cassie. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope it was valuable to you please remember to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and links to connect with our guest. If you would like to support what I'm doing, the best way to help me grow the show is to subscribe, of course, but also share it with your friends and family or on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also leave a five-star review and or a comment. A special thank you, as always, to Tyler Gatto for composing the theme music for the podcast and to Wyatt Pavlik for the excellent audio engineering each and every episode. So until next time, keep training hard, keep eating plants, and take care.